politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, American taxpayers, free citizens to the Conservative Review podcast. It is the end of the week. We always love Fridays here because, frankly, we get burned out by Wednesday. So uh, Friday cannot come soon enough, October 11th. And uh, really, we would typically do either Foreign Policy Friday, Free For All Friday, but I want to do something a little bit different. We promised at the beginning of the week to talk about what really matters in the country, um, which is only one branch of government that matters, and that's the judiciary. But we got sidetracked. There's a lot going on with Syria, um, Turkey, the Kurds, all always our jailbreak, sanctuary, border narratives that we are going to continue talking about. But I do want to get back to the courts. So next week, Congress is going to come back in session, and there really is nothing doing. Um, Democrats will push their agenda, as they always do, but they don't have the Senate. So most of it won't pass, although some stuff does get through, even with a Republican majority and a Republican president. And Republicans in control of the Senate will not push anything um, from their end, even in one house. So we're pretty much at the stalemate until the election, and then we'll be at the stalemate until the next election because Congress doesn't do anything. All of the legislative action takes place not in the legislature, it takes place in the judiciary. So every time the Supreme Court comes back into session, which now um, with October well upon us, they are back in session, every case that gets there, that is considered like a legislative item. Well, um, is a man a woman? Is a citizen, uh, is an alien a citizen? And somehow their rendering of an opinion in a case is tantamount to passage of irrevocable legislation. So it, it clearly matters what goes on. And I wanted to bring in a special guest today to discuss and set the table for us what is going on this session at the Supreme Court, some of the cases we already heard oral arguments in this week, um, and digging a little bit deeper beneath the surface of this much vaunted yet elusive conservative majority in the Supreme Court that really on some level is going to appear that it's doing stuff for us, that we're winning some cases, but now really in the long run, we're actually losing the battle the minute we agree, as we always say on the show, to the premise that the judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, but the lower courts are supreme because the left has gained that out and we do not have a conservative legal movement to fight that with equal and opposing force. Now, many of you are familiar with Josh Hammer, so he doesn't really need much of an intro, for, but for those of you who are not, he is the editor at large at the Daily Wire. He's also does some good work at the council at First Liberty. Um, it's a Texas based religious liberty legal defense group. Uh, one of the few out there really fighting um, the rainbow jihad. And uh, in addition to that, unlike me, he has actually walked in the legal circle. So he really has a lot of experience Um you know, when I, I need to rant, there's few people I could talk to is quite lonely in this uh, in this profession. But Josh was a clerk at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge James Ho, one of the newer Fifth Circuit judges appointed by um, by President Trump. He also served as a law clerk uh, for uh, Mike Lee on the Judiciary Committee a little while ago. He's a blogger, a writer. He graduated from Duke University, where he majored in economics and from the University of Chicago Law School. And today, Josh joins us from the Windy City. 
Hey, Josh, how you doing? Great to have you on the show. Daniel, you're a warrior for our cause. It's always great to be on with you. I'm telling you, I had two requests for you just this week. So I was like, look, you know, you ask and your request will be fulfilled. We, we have a very good audience here. Um, let me look, we, we could talk for hours and um, this discussion is endless. Let me set the table like this. Here's my concern headed into the session. Cases don't start at the Supreme Court, even though most people only follow them at the Supreme Court level. They start at the lower courts. So my concern is this, that what's happening is the panoply of cases that are coming before the court, the high court these days, are more novel and radical than ever. You always have some interesting cases where all sides could debate. They're truly are unique individual cases and controversies. How would you judge in these cases? But then there are other cases where the lower courts created this novel idea, a right to immigrate, a right to um, codify transgenderism into civil rights. And the problem is that we don't have a liberal you know, majority on the Supreme Court. But what we have is we have four ironclad liberals and you have Thomas, who's the only originalist that is fully reliable. You have Alito, who's usually reliable, but there are times you never know. You got quirks with the other ones. And then you got Roberts most often, but sometimes Kavanaugh, where they have what I call the Roberts scorecard. So <laughs> they don't want to look like, yeah, I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Last term, yeah. there was this discussion. All the legal blogs talked about it. Are conservatives going to sweep? And the problem is you and I don't believe in a matter of right or left sweeping or not sweeping, especially because we don't believe their opinions should hold the weight of legislation. But my concern is that if I have four cases that come before a court and one of them is anyone named Josh Hammer has to pay an extra 50 percent in taxes. Another one is one member of each family has to get a sex change operation. Another one is that every Somali has the right to displace an American um, in, a, in, a, in the workforce and, and in their homes. They have to surrender their homes. And the lower courts already ruled that in the affirmative, that those things are true. They come before the Supreme Court. So it's no longer, hmm, 50-50. Well, let's see what's going to happen here. Yes, in every one of those cases, they need to categorically uproot that, not because they're siding with the right on a political matter, just because... That's what the law and the Constitution compel. My concern is I have no doubt that on more than 50 percent, and I hope I'm not being too chari- chari- charitable here, on more than 50 percent of the cases, we will win. But my yeah. concern is the fact that they're already there and the lower courts have ruled the wrong way is going to get in the psyche of Roberts where he's going to do what he did with the census. He's going to take one, two, or three of them and find a way to screw us. With that, kind of just set the table of what's coming before us. Yeah, wow. So, so much to unpack there, obviously. Um, So what we're lacking on the broader 35,000-foot altitude level, Daniel, and there are no two people in all of conservative media who beat this drum as hard as you and I both do, is that we don't understand what the judicial power in the vesting clause of Article 3 actually means. And contrary to to the judicial supremacists, contrary to the people who will elevate the 1958 judicial atrocity of Cooper v. Aaron, which established judicial supremacy to the highest PN of the judicial totem pole, 
That is actually in direct contravention of the express text of Chief Justice Marshall's famous decree in Marbury v. Madison itself. So let's just start there, and then we'll continue to unpack a little bit. Mm -hmm. In Marbury, Chief Justice Marshall famously says, it is emphatically the province of the judicial department to say what the law is. That's what everyone always quotes. What they never quote, Daniel, is literally the very next sentence after that, where Marshall also says, and it is therefore, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the verbatim text in front of me. He says, it is therefore the duty of the judicial department to expound and interpret the law as it applies to individual cases. That, as it applies, is the crux of the judicial power. The judicial power, Daniel, applies obviously to the parties to the suit. It goes no further whatsoever than that. This, this ultimately gets you to Abraham Lincoln, who obviously defied the court and Dred Scott and all of that. So at a, at a broader level, we as a society are just completely missing the scope of judicial power in this country. And the legal academy, the legal profession, as someone who went to a top law school, I can tell you it is generally inculcated in the rising generation of law students this erroneous belief as to the basic nature of the binding authority of the courts. It's very tragic. And on a, on a personal professional note, I think I've told you, Daniel, but I'm happy to tell your viewers as well. I'm actually now a speaker on law school chapters with the Federal Society, which is great because it, I guess the, the I guess the onus falls on me to be one of the few people. Someone's got to gotta try do it. And, someone, someone's got to do it, right? Uh, Michael Stokes Paulson is a brilliant I, law professor. I mean, Josh, nothing matters until this is dealt yeah. with. Because if you're going to tell me that there is a unilateral and irrevocable veto power. You know, it talks about the presidential veto, but there's this uh, invisible uh, clause and invisible ink that talks about a judicial veto. Well, it doesn't. But but that that's what I mean, we're the ones who are looked at as crazy for not believing in it. And they read that into Marbury versus Madison, which which, as you said, that's not the case. You render an opinion in, in that case, but you don't strike down laws. But if you're going to tell me that is the case. Whoa. So that's a big deal. Then it makes sense that we're all going to sit, as they say in Yiddish, on spilkas. We're going to just like go nuts and tear each other apart over um over judicial nominees. And um, oh, my God, because because that's what matters. The president doesn't matter because, frankly, that could be revoked by the courts. Right. But nothing could revoke the courts unless another Supreme Court revokes that court. Oh, whoops. Let's get to another point I want you to go off with. Um, and I think this is a better way to maybe set the table for life, immigration, um, the rainbow jihad cases, some of what we're seeing with criminal law, and that's this. So our side, including those that disagree with us, the more libertarians that are, you know, they're very into striking down. So they also like this notion of, oh, reversing Supreme Court precedent. Now, we also like it, but in a different way, because we, we don't think it's a big deal to begin with. So reverse it, don't reverse it. You have two other branches of government that could do what they want. But but that's a different story. So anyway, the holy grail was let's get in better judges so we could reverse all these opinions since the Warren era of the Supreme Court that we didn't like. Now, I think you and I both know that what, whatever it is the left doesn't like, whether it's Heller whether you know for guns whether it's um citizens united on campaign finance we all know there are four the four democrat appointees are chomping at the bit they'll they would categorically rip it out no problems and the minute you would get a fifth justice they would artfully you know and alacritously get the first case from the lower courts and they'll do it 
our side, I don't even see us reversing Hellerstat, which is the Gosnell regulations on the health um, standards of abortion clinics, much less reverse and growing Casey. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong at all. Yeah, you know, Daniel, I before we got on the air, I was skimming a piece. Uh, I don't know why I, I do this to myself, but I was skimming a piece by Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate, who's kind of like their like main legal blogger. Not a particularly big fan of my former boss, uh, Judge Jim Ho, I might add. Mark, Mark, Mark Joseph Stern's, I think, the biggest basher of my former boss and off Twitter. But anyway, for some reason, I was reading his Supreme Court preview just to try and like understand the mentality of the left as we enter the Supreme Court term. And they're terrified. I mean, they think this is like a 1920s pre-New Deal, like four horsemen style court that's going to like, <laughs> you know, like like read all sorts of radical right wing ideology into statutory and constitutional law. In reality, Daniel, you and I know that is obviously not the case. Um, Roe is not going anywhere whatsoever. Casey is not going anywhere whatsoever. I I, I, I wrote a column the other day previewing some court cases for our site, The Daily Wire, and my best prediction is that the court will probably find a way to uphold the Fifth Circuit on the G case. That's the Louisiana abortion case. That's my best guess, but it will be a very, very narrow ground Maybe they'll have some language to pare back the uh, farcical nature of the undue burn standard that the court promulgated in the Casey case in 1992. But it'll go no more than that. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Robert or Kavanaugh like, just straight up flip sides and we actually lost that case. But uh, there are really no particular cases that I look at this term and think to myself, wow, we're really going to make doctrinal headway here. I mean, I think we're going to win the DACA case. Probably on five four grounds will probably be a traditional five four split. But, but, but that's insane. I'm exactly. just saying, like the fact exactly. that a president yeah. must violate immigration law is not allowed. You must issue amnesty. Not only can he issue amnesty under Obama, but then a subsequent subsequent president can't do it. So that's my concern. But because we have such a weak political movement on the right, in addition to legal movement, so they don't fight radical things. So the radical things take hold. And it becomes like normal. And then to the justices are like, man, you know, this is this is like 50 50. If anything, it's really 90 10 because politically almost everyone supports it. There's very few people in Congress who don't support DACA. It's like God's gift to the world. And my concern is what you just said. Roberts would be like, holy smokes, yeah. man, I like I can't find a way to you know, justify this. So he'll probably rule the right way. But there's currency, you know, that he he. That's going to cost us. Yeah. Do you do, what, what sort of cases do you think it's going to cost us on? So in my column, I actually predicted that it would be it is, I, I'm really kind of speculating. There's obviously no way. No, my best guess is I could see Kavanaugh actually being the one to side with the left in Zarda in the Title seven sexual orientation, gender identity, LGBTQ alphabet soup stuff. But I could see Roberts doing that, too. I mean, the reason I, I don't think Roberts will screw us there. Because he, he, he did have a pretty robust dissent in Obergefell. Um, and, and that is coming to the back of my mind when I say that. But Kavanaugh, I mean, I, Kavanaugh is not an originalist, okay? I, I think he's publicly identified as an originalist. But my review of his D.C. Circuit history does not mm. particularly indicate to me. I think he's probably a textualist or textualist sympathetic when it comes to statutes. But in terms of constitutional interpretation, I do not see him looking to found era, mm. founding era documentation like Thomas or Scalia. I have really no indication that that's the case. So, yeah, I mean, Roberts, also, also, could you talk a little bit about haven't we noticed just from his first year on the court, he seems to be 
overly obsessive and almost gratuitous in some of his concurrences to say this is well within our precedent, almost like he wants to show I'm not into reversing bad precedents, which was the whole again, the whole purpose of being of the conservative legal movement, you know, getting their nominees on the courts to say we're going to reverse some of these previous decisions. I, I think he's not going to expand on a lot of the bad ones, but haven't we seen a lot of these concurrences where he's saying that, like, I don't want to expand, I, I, you know, th- this is well within our precedent. Yeah, no, Kavanaugh has been the king of superfluous legal writing so far. He's the king <laughs> of nothing, if not that. I mean, we, we can go back to this the same case, June Medical Service VG. When the court decided to stay that case, Roberts obviously wanted the liberals to stay it. The uh, other three, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, dissented. And when you dissent from a stay like that, you don't have to write anything. You can just dissent. Kavanaugh took it on himself to write like, it was like three and a half to four pages. It was a pretty short writing. It was really weird. He was trying to see, it it, it just read like pure virtue signaling. It was just, he was trying to find a way out. He was trying to placate everyone. It very much read like he was trying to say to to the legal left and the political left, frankly, don't worry, I haven't made up my mind here. I'm not like one of these crazy Bible-thumping pro-lifers. So that was like a very early red flag. That was only uh, two months probably into his core tenure. But the one that really stands out to me was the Bladensburg Cross case of American Legion. That was an mm-hmm. establishment cause case that we theoretically won. And full disclosure, Daniel, I am of counsel at First Liberty Institute. First Liberty Institute mm-hmm. was counsel on that case. So as the lawyer, you obviously love to see your plaintiff win. Or sorry, your, your client, whether it's plaintiff or defendant. But from a doctrinal constitutional law standpoint, that case did not do a whole lot for us at all. We had a, an amazing chance to overturn the so-called Lemon Test for establishing cause. Lemon v. Kurtzman, 1970s case, complete fabrication. The establishing clause is one of the most perverted Bill of Rights doctrines in the entire Bill of Rights. I personally have it up there with the cruel and unusual punishments clause of the Eighth Amendment as the two most utterly judicially bastardized provisions in the entire Bill of Rights. And we couldn't even make headway into the lemon test. And like the left is now freaking out that we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Give me a break. But go back to American Legion, the Establishing Clause case. Kavanaugh, yet again, took it upon himself to write a very flowery, like frankly bizarre concurrence, I guess the, 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 uh, the nature of the writing would have, been, would, would have been a concurrence, where he basically says, oh, this one, is, this particular cross in, in Blainsburg, Maryland has been around for so long. It's so grounded in the community. But, you know, like if a different kind of cross might offend like non-Christians, maybe it might be a little different. Very virtue signally. Like there's just no reason to do that. No reason whatsoever. You just reminded me. I, I, I remember at least in two or three concurrences where he's he says something. First, let's say what this case is not about. He's very into and And again, if you are and we're all for going narrow, but if you are seeing the lower courts um just issue these novel rulings you don't have you have to say look this is not grounded in any of the constitution and i think the problem you and i had is that everyone everyone in our circles believes in originalism there's no one who doesn't everyone wants an originalist so what we tried to do is we put together a list of questions i i did it for gorsuch and kavanaugh okay these are very specific things that are coming up the, the the pipeline now and when I say specific, I don't mean a specific case. Hey, how would you rule on this? But they're very clear guiding principles on, you know, the plenary power doctrine on immigration, um, who has control over immigration. And 
if you're any bit of a, an originalist, it's black and white. Meaning if you look at what Thomas would say on it, it's very clear. And they're like, well, you want that type of original? Ah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, fine. So then don't lie to me. If you're going to tell me there's only one Clarence Thomas, then stop telling me that somehow we could keep playing this judicial game and we're going to win it. Yeah, no, there really only is one Clarence Thomas. Um, Clarence Thomas, in my estimation, is the greatest living American in, in the entire country. I, I, I've only, unfortunately, had the privilege of meeting him once, and it was pretty brief. But I am fortunate enough in the circles I run in to be friends with many people who have clerked for him and consider him friends, know him well. And there truly only is one Clarence Thomas. I mean, you can go back to his to his brutal confirmation hearing and you understand that Clarence Thomas understands the nature of the left in a way that his colleagues, possibly even including Scalia, just didn't even viscerally in their gut grasp because of the way that he was just so besmirched and vilified and had his career thrown out. And there was a part of me that thought that that actually might happen to Kavanaugh while he was going to do something similar. But you know, the results so far turns out to indicate that he had no. the, the, the Clarence Thomas life evolution. I guess we'll see if perhaps he surprises us, but I'm not particularly optimistic. But you're absolutely right. Clarence Thomas, I, I, I joke to friends. Actually, I don't joke. I'm very serious about this. I think he has probably like a 95 to 98 percent presumption of correctness on constitutional issues. He, he's not perfect. No one is a truly machine. And I can actually think of a couple of cases where I respectfully disagree with him. But he is right far more often than anyone, even including lower court judges, as far as I can tell. And the notion that we can just, you know, grow mini Clarence Thomases in a Petri dish in a lab underneath the Federal Society offices in Washington, D.C., and just kind of replicate them <laughs> on the lower courts, that's, that's just not how this works. And I'll give you actually one concrete example. Um, Amy Coney Barrett, who I, I, I met briefly, she's lovely. Um, I think very highly of her. I've heard anecdotally that the term she clerked on the court, she clerked for Scalia. Apparently, all the law clerks viewed her as like the smartest law clerk. I, I think very highly of her. I've had friends clerk for her. She's wonderful. Having said that, she wrote a law review piece while she was a professor at Notre Dame, uh, not quite offering an apologia for her former boss, Justice Scalia, but trying to explain Justice Scalia's approach to stare decisis, which is obviously quite famously very different than Justice Thomas's approach. Yeah. And it read a little odd to me. I mean, she she seemed to be, again, not apologizing for Scalia, but she at least seemed sympathetic to that. And I think you and I would both agree that Thomas's approach, where you actually just go back to the constitutional text, screw precedent if the, if the precedent is is not uh, constitutional, is the, is the correct approach. So I say that, and again, I just want to emphasize, I really do like Judge Barrett a lot. But even like the best of the best and people who everyone in our yes. movement is kind of grasping to, it's still not Thomas. Even it's still the not best Thomas. of the best. So, so th this is the problem. This is the problem I have. So the left never has this problem. So, so they know lock, stock, and barrel where their guys are going to be. But with our side, and again, I don't need to know where they're going to be either if the other branches of government would treat and regard their power um, constitutionally the way it's supposed to be, then I don't care. Then, yeah, it should be a guessing game. And it should be subject to whatever that case is. But if they're going to be these novel questions, like did the Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act cover someone who chops their you know what off? Um, that that somehow included in what really was an unconstitutional act, albeit it was viewed as needed uh, to rectify other un unconstitutional treatment of blacks at the time. But it was clearly targeting them, not anyone else. Um, we shouldn't have to be like, man, I, I think he'll rule OK, but that's how we all. So isn't this game of musical chairs where basically you got everyone's like there's five to four. But I always joke it's five. It, I mean, 
it's not five to four. It's four to one for liberals and Thomas. And the other guys is like, I think we'll get three out of the four remaining, but each one <laughs> takes turns screwing us. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that no, was the that, story that, of last term. That, that was literally the story of last term. You know, it's remarkable. I mean, we lose Gorsuch on the criminal issues. We lose Alito on some stuff. We lose Roberts every time there's like a huge hot button political issue. And as you quite accurately say, he's playing like political football. He's trading currency. If I give here, I'm going to take there. So his calculation yeah. is, frankly, from my perspective, just not legitimate. It's not in line with his Article 3 oath, frankly. I, I don't yeah, feel uncomfortable no, really at isn't. all going there, honestly. Um, so, yeah, Thomas is the only originalist on the court. He's the only true original. Neil Gorsuch frames his opinions through an originalist lens, usually, even when he, from our perspective, gets it incorrect. But he is just fundamentally misguided on some core originalist doctrines. I mean, he is so off, in, from my perspective, on the so unconstitutional. Talk about some of the cases that we're, we're seeing come up based on what we have seen. Um, my concern is a lot of people forget that one quarter to one third of cases that come to the Supreme Court at any given time are criminal law cases, which that that's legitimate. That is, as we always say on this program, more the legitimate province of of the court system to deal with that. But the problem is, once again, they're not anomalous circumstances. They say basic like state criminal justice procedures in, in the courts and jury pools that have been going on for 200 years are suddenly unconstitutional. This statute that, you know, Armed Career Criminal Act gone. So what are some of the criminal cases coming up and, and what are the, some, of the, some of the concerns you have with Gorsuch? Yeah, so Gorsuch kind of first, I guess, announced the world his libertarian sympathies on criminal and criminal adjacent issues in, in the 2018 case of Sessions v. DiMaia, which you quite properly just eviscerated the time. I was clerking at the time, so I couldn't publicly comment on it, but <laughs> private, privately I was pretty distraught myself. And he has this very flowery, lengthy concurrence where he's quoting Blackstone. Again, he tries to frame this stuff through the lens of the founding. And I actually personally like his writing style. I think he's an enjoyable yeah. writer to read. Um, but he, he he subscribes to this notion that a statute can be unconstitutionally void for vagueness. Um, now, Scalia and Thomas kind of went back and forth on this. Thomas now has made his stance and it's very clear. At times, Scalia seemed a little more sympathetic to it. But as Thomas, I think, quite clearly lays out in his Sessions v. DeMai dissent, the notion of unconstitutionally void for vagueness is nonsense. Because to read that this vagueness criterion into the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment due process clause is itself a form of so-called substantive due process. Anytime that you are reading the due process clause as being anything other than what Thomas calls the law of the land view of due process, where you are merely entitled to the due process that is statutorily or administratively publicly held out there in contradistinction to the star chamber of the old English system in the 1600s, that then you were entering the realm of substantive due process. So Gorsuch continued this last term. He continued his kind of sessions v. DeMaia intellectual regression, we might call it, in the twin cases this past June of U.S. v. Davis and U.S. v. Rahaf. In the latter, he was joined, if I recall, by both Roberts and Kavanaugh, so he had a little more ground there. It was still a very bad decision, but he, he went solo in Davis. And Davis was a decision— Was that was that the case with the armed robbers? Yes, yes, exactly okay. right. It was, it was 18, 18 U.S. Code 924C. Because I, I think the important thing is, in that case, there's no question it was a crime of violence. But he's saying—meaning— just to frame it for our audience, because it gets gets very naughty. 
people could disagree on certain principles, legal principles, and, and that's fine. But the problem with this void for vagueness thing is it speaks to the foundation of what is and isn't the judicial power. Yes. Meaning, if you believe that they rule on a case, well, what is the case? Was that guy rightfully convicted or not? That is covered by statute. Well, I don't like the statute. Well, why? It's too vague. Well, did he commit a crime of violence? He for sure did. But you would have to say that it, because in other cases, it might rope in things that are too vague, the statute falls. So then there's nothing left to convict even this guy on. That's what concerned me. But I was like, wait a minute. You might believe things are vague. I might think they're not. But what you're doing is something more. You're saying this is judicial veto. Yeah, so the, the legal community calls this the so-called categorical approach uh, to interpreting a statute. Um, in the Armed Career Criminal Act context, it was, it's been the lay of the land since the 2015 decision of Johnson v. U.S., which basically gutted the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act. Frankly, Daniel, as a prior Fifth Circuit law clerk, I can tell you the Armed Career Criminal Act post-U.S. v. Johnson is probably the single most frustrating statute to work on from a law clerk perspective because of the complete insanity of this so-called categorical approach. It's, it's, it's exactly the intellectual exercise that you're describing. You're because, not Josh, to... you don't have a statute anymore. You have a floating, ever-evolving judicial right. legislative work. Meaning, right. if they want to work on a case, they'll work on a case. But if you say, no, the law can't be used like this anymore, as if it's like a veto, then, well, we need a new law. But who says you had that power to do that to begin with? Right, exactly. So uh, to, to get back to the Gorsuch thing, so he so he signs yeah. the liberals in, in, in U.S. v. Davis, 18 U.S. Code 924C, called unconstitutionally void for vagueness. So he's kind of just continuing this. Now, I, I don't recall if there are, are any unconstitutionally void for vagueness challenges this term, but there are some big criminal cases this term. The D.C. sniper case, Malvo, I think oral arguments are coming up this coming week, if I'm not mistaken. Now, the issue in Malvo, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I can't remember if it's Malvo or Malvo. But yeah. the issue there is essentially whether you continue the cases of Miller v. Alabama and Montgomery v. Louisiana, which both say that you can't mandatorily lock up a juvenile for life without parole. They both yeah. say, you, and then Montgomery retroactively applies that. Applied it retroactively, yeah. Right, exactly. So the, if, if, I, if I understand Malvo correctly, the question is then whether we further extend that. So it's not just applied retroactively. But it's also applied to cases where the juvenile is there for life, but it's not mandatory. He was just sentenced like that by the district court. So if I understand the case correctly, that's what's going on here. And obviously, you, you and I, Daniel, both know that this is a complete – this would make a hash of the 8th and 14th Amendment to continue yeah. going down this road. For, freeze frame but, right there. What you're saying right there. If we did a, our job, you know, the Federalist Society and all these conservative organizations, which are really libertarians um, – if we were truly getting originalists on the court, we should have full confidence that irrespective of your political views on crime, that there is no way the five Republican appointees should ever be able to say that a practice that was in place forever, that somehow it's unconstitutional to sentence someone under 18, forget that, the death sentence, uh, capital punishment, to life without parole. But yet, yet, what happened was, and, and I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because to me, this is perfect in understanding. We're like, will they overturn a case from 1960, 1970? This is from freaking 2012 and 2016. These are new cases, new cases. 
Yeah, and and in, in Alabama, in the Miller case, they said basically you have to have a separate, I think, process for um, life without parole. Um, that, that that it had to, yeah, had to have a whole new consideration uh, to consider the guys whether he's incorrigible or he's reformable at that age, at seventeen or whatever. And then again in Louisiana, four years later, they applied retroactively. So the first one was Kennedy. It was Kennedy and the and the left. Then weirdly and 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 roberts wrote the dissent but then weirdly when they took it the next step and applied they said you know it, it's it's cruel and unusual to have life without parole at least established that way applied it retroactively it, roberts goes and joins them so my concern is even if we win this case it will be they just didn't expand it more but Dude, shouldn't categorically reversing Miller be a no-brainer? I mean, that's not even a big deal. No, it's not a big deal. And again, it just kind of gets to the to the farcical notion. The left is is freaking out so much that this radically conservative court might overturn Roe v. Wade and even older precedents than that. We here are we're talking that we're skeptical of overturning a 2011-2012 pair that have no foundation whatsoever in the constitutional text. Now, Roberts did something similar this past February. It was, it, was, it was a death penalty case, I believe it was out of Texas. I think it was Moore was named the case. I don't remember the exact procedural posture, but, the, but it involved executions for those who were adjudicated as intellectually disabled by the, by the state of Texas criminal justice system. Roberts flipped over like the course of like one or two years. And I, I kind of look at that. I look what he did in, in the Miller-Montgomery, which, which I think was also only a difference of like one year. I think Montgomery was only like one year after Miller. Mm -hmm. I think Roberts just takes a very, very peculiarly, strangely strong view of the binding nature of stare decisis on how we should adjudicate, even if he dissented in a prior case. I, that has to be what's going on in Miller and Montgomery, right? So I, if, if, you, if you look over the course of what Roberts has done over his career— Every time that he's overturned a precedent or, uh, you know, invalidated the enforcement of a statute in a particular way, he's really never done so right off the bat cleanly like a Thomas or a Scalia would do. He's always like a, it's always a classic John Roberts two-step or a three-step. I think that to, to, to Shelby County is a good example of this. If I recall, he kind of like wrote an opinion in like 2008 or 2009, Northwestern Utility, I think was the case, if I remember correctly, where he kind of wrote, wrote an opinion he was like, Congress, I'm flagging this for you. The you know the Voting Rights Act this is very problematic. You haven't updated the Section 4 coverage formula since 1965 or whatever it was. And then he finally wrote the majority opinion in Shelby County, a, a shoddily written opinion, by the way, not a very well-written opinion. The correct result, but not a good opinion. So Robert just takes this unusually strong view of stare decisis. And I think for him, the stare decisis notion is very much intertwined with his view of what we're really getting at here which is his view of the institutional integrity of the court. I think he yes. views judges being bound by stare decisis as kind of part and parcel, part of this broader theme of the institutional integrity and the fact that he's scared yes. of, of pissing off New York Times editorial board and MSNBC and whatnot. You, you, and and you according to his biographer, what, what's her name? Um, Joan Biskabok, whatever her name. I mean, it's, I right. can't pronounce her name. Something from his, she's the CNN legal um, correspondent, and she wrote a biography on, on John Roberts. So she recently revealed that her sources say that he flipped like he did on Obamacare, he did on the census case. He originally sided with um, the conservatives and flipped it. And, and that was, again, that was very transparent. He said, 
the Constitution allows you to do it, and statute, and the APA, you follow that too, and it's in our history. But uh, I don't like you the what you told the lower court judge. Well, it doesn't matter if if you say there's no valid inquiry into what you did, which you're now saying, then the lower court had no right to ask it, and it doesn't matter what you say. I could say because uh, you know because I want to kill more trees and write you know an extra, extra part of the paper on the on the census. I mean, you could have any reason. Um, it's only if they're alleging a statutory violation or a constitutional violation could you make that inquiry. So under anyone's system, what he did was illegitimate. And what I want to we're running out of time here. I want to bring this to the lower courts. Here's what concerns me going on going forward. Roberts wouldn't be that bad if you didn't have the lower courts. So you could just stay out. You know, you just he would just as much as he can just stay out of these cases if a plaintiff tries to a potential plaintiff take something outlandish on immigration or criminal law or or um you know election law to the courts you just don't take it the problem is they're shopping it around to the most extreme california judges the dc district is very bad and that's a whole nother story of why we're never going to win back the courts the the left has a super majority at the district and appellate level that's really the most important circuit and there's a lot of bad stuff coming out of there. So then that now you're caught because, well, the lower courts did something insane. So you got to take it, although he often doesn't take it up. But then the ones you do, you got to rule the right way on. And then that's where he gets all twisted up. So here's my problem. And, and you've experienced this, I think, more than anyone else, because you did clerk for one of the most conservative, however you define that, lower court judges in the Fifth Circuit, James, James Ho. And that's this. The, the problem I'm noticing is that it's not just a beam counting of how many seats you control on this district or this circuit. The left controls the institution of law. They control the law schools. They control the legal media. They control everything. So oh, yeah. the, the, the problem is no lower court conservative judge is going to say, screw this 50 years of Supreme Court stuff. This is evil. This is not right. This is what I'm doing. Even your boss wouldn't have done that. And when he was perceived as doing that, he was called out by name. I mean, you remember that and, and you were clerking then and you couldn't say anything. But you had from Slate and these other magazines. They they're like, we know where you live, buddy. They named him. Whereas when the the, the left wing lower courts, there's no stigma against being more progressive. So we, we had last month as categorical from the Supreme Court as you'll get. They started actually taking up expedited appeals on immigration. The, the, the litigation that he can't build the wall, no. The Supreme Court is like, that is nonsense. Threw that out. Took off the injunction. All the asylum policies at the border, no, come on. Threw that out. And we're like, all right, well, maybe, maybe it's, the system is finally starting to work. And then the very same courts in California came back and said, expedited removal gone which is like the nine the crux of the 96 statute um they said detainers ice can't issue detainers without a criminal warrant um gone uh there was a the florist the florist change gone two of those were california one uh, one was um one of them i think on the 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 detainers was the dc court what i'm saying is like the the, the northern district of, of california the the guys there, they didn't they didn't feel like kind of sheepish. Like every time this goes to the Supreme Court, they overturn me. It doesn't matter. They come back for more. 
and, and, our, and our system gets shut down and then eventually it becomes legitimate and then Robert starts taking it 50-50 and it's not so shocking anymore that maybe immigrants have a claim where no one would have given them such a claim. And that, you know, it's, it's almost like death by a thousand cuts. And I think, I, I just don't know how to articulate this enough when all my friends and you and I go, we do the talk radio circuit and they're like, Daniel, how about all those judges Trump is appointing? It doesn't speak to this. Right. So you're talking, I guess, what lawyers call the so-called shadow docket of the Supreme Court, which is basically the docket of all the cases that, that they do not grant a writ of cert to actually hear. Um, and, there, you know, there's a lot of procedural nuances that the justice can do for lower court cases that they still deny to hear, with stays being a great example of that. Now, it seems to me, and I think you would agree with this, every time a lower court steps so-called out of line to the right and gets more conservative, it seems to immediately get swatted down by the justices. But every time a lower court steps out of line to the left in a more progressive manner, uh, the chief and perhaps Kavanaugh as well will usually just be content to let it stand, oftentimes over a vociferous dissent from Clarence Thomas. Um, so it really is a one-way ratchet. Um, the nationwide injunction issue makes this orders of magnitude worse. The notion that, from our perspective, we need to win at, what, 94 district courts? I mean, they need to win at one to uphold their policies nationwide. Um, I'm actually cautiously optimistic, side note, that we actually might ultimately get a favorable ruling on nationwide injunctions. It really seems to me seems to me that the intellectual momentum on legal right is increasingly adamantly against them. So that's actually one issue that I'm uncharacteristically mm. optimistic on, probably, probably not this term, but over the next few terms, I would think so. Um, but the shadow docket is a, is a big problem. And the lower court thing, Daniel, this is actually really interesting. So in Article 3 of the Constitution, they talk about how it establishes one Supreme Court and however many lower, sorry, however many inferior courts, the words inferior, inferior courts that the Congress may from time to time establish. Now, Michael Stokes Paulson, my single favorite constitutional law scholar, writes, I think quite persuasively, that when the framers used the word inferior, they were only referring to the fact that they could have their judgment reversed by a higher court. They were not yeah. saying that the lower courts have to be bound by fallacious, textually, you know, atextual, unconstitutional, purported reasoning. So my theory, actually, is that the lower courts, if they are faithfully applying the Constitution, can actually willfully defy erroneous Supreme Court precedent. Yep. That is my personal theory. That's an academic theory. I don't know a but, single but, federal But, but that's a theory of how Congress certainly can, the executive branch certainly can. Everyone must independently... Um, interpret the constitution i think the problem you and i have is again the one-way street and dead end business where no no one's allowed to except for the supreme court oh well with the exception of a lower court liberal judge could always be more progressive well wait a minute so so that's the problem like you look at people like tiger and dolly g and um gosh one of these other clowns from 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 california they're getting reversed all the time but <laughs> there's they come back for more and, yeah. and and that's the problem, and and we never delegitimize that. So so that's my concern that people who look at a conservative Supreme Court and they see a conservative Supreme Court in their view, they're not taking a holistic view of what is happening down the system and how over time we're not winning. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I would actually add one more factor to make it even worse. On top of that. What does it even mean to be a judicial conservative these days? What does it mean to be a conservative who cares about the Supreme Court? 
I mean, I was under the impression when I first joined the Federal Society as a first-year law student at the University of Chicago that we were conservatives and that this organization was founded in 1982 by people who, yes, originalism, we believe, is the only intellectually legitimate method of constitutional interpretation. But at the time, it was also very much a reaction to Roe versus Wade and other bread and butter, social, cultural, civilizational issues. Miranda. Yeah. Miranda. And Mies always said that's the case he wanted to overturn. No, that's exactly right. And we had our chance in U.S. v. Dickerson in 2000, where Chief Justice Rehnquist, unfortunately, uh, uh. did not issue a particularly good rule and probably the very worst ruling of his entire judicial career, I would argue. Um, but that at the time was really kind of the practical impetus for the founding of the modern legal conservative movement. Yep. Now, somewhere along the way, Daniel, we just got so lost. And I say this as someone who was personal friends with many of like, the leading libertarian sure. scholars, and the, the leading luminaries, people like Randy Barnett, Ilya Shapiro, uh, these are personal friends of mine. I, I'm on texting terms with these guys. But what they are saying to law school Federal Society chapters is just so different than what the Federal yeah. Society was preaching when it was first founded back in the days of Scalia and Bork, when Ed Whelan was kind of like a more popular national speaker. And we care about different issues. And this is kind of why you and I both wrote about the Josh Hawley versus, versus Naomi Rouse show, excuse me, back in February. Because that was very much kind of a litmus test, it seems, for social conservatives versus libertarians. The libertarians are promoting her as you know yeah. the regulatory czar, the head of OIRA. She's going to be great on gutting the administrative state. And my response to that is, great. I you know I want the non-delegation doctrine restored. I want Chevron an hour deference overturned as well. But honestly, I care about those issues less than I care about the bread and butter cultural civilizational issues. Which I, I would both. rather the shield than the sword. In, in other words, again, you and I don't believe in this striking down. So it's a false polarization that's being created because of, of a power that we don't think exists. But if we're going to treat it as such, so I'm more concerned that our civilization doesn't get struck down than using the courts as a sword to so-called strike down their stuff. And again, you and I agree that courts are one avenue that if you do have a legitimate constitutional gripe that's individualized, if government is is fining me, imprisoning me, threatening me for for holding my 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 life, liberty, property, or my right to protect that with with a firearm, I could say, look, don't tase me, bro. Get off my lawn. Um, as opposed to saying, hey, I want a visa. I'm a, I'm a foreign national. I want a visa. I want a marriage license. I want um. You know, I I want five Sundays of early voting before an election. Well, th- that's not that's not a right, um, nor is that a judicial power either. But my concern is this: so they're 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 not bothered by courts striking down borders, election law, um, all the racial social engineering they're doing with affirmative action. Um, what they're concerned about is no, no, the judicial supremacy is is, is fine. I want to use it to strike down their stuff, their regulatory stuff, their, you know, stuff like that. So here's the problem I have with these people. Your day is coming. Your day's already here. Because the minute you agree to judicial supremacism, they think they're going to kind of tame that beast and sick it on the other side. The reality is the same way the courts are creating novel ideas of the right to immigrate, the right to homosexual this, the right to transgender that, the right to um, 50 different types of appeals and jury striking maneuvers and all sorts of things on criminal law and the rewrite the fourth and fifth and sixth amendments to basically make it that you can't criminally convict the worst people around. 
guess what? Isn't it true? You you look at, you know, economic issues. The courts are now saying you can't drill here. You have to continue Obama's moratorium on um, on leasing for uh, nat- natural gas and oil explore- exploration yeah. there in Alaska. They're start- what is the one thing libertarians should celebrate? The, the one very few fiscal um, good thing, good things fiscally have come out of Republican control of anything. One of the only things I see is a couple of states, New Hampshire, Kentucky, Arkansas, adopting work requirements for Medicaid. Right. The f- right. w- one single federal judge in the D.C. district struck down all struck down all of them. Dude, I mean, your time's coming. Yeah. What's good for the goose is, is, is good for the gander. Right. Um, no, look, I this is this is perhaps my biggest frustration being a product of kind of this you know, top law school, federal society culture is what is getting out there and what these students are exposed to is actually not fully compatible and not truly in line with what a lot of these students claim to believe. Because remember, when you're in constitutional law class in law school, if you're a right of center student, you're going to be kind of falling over yourself, excited to read these vociferous dissents from Thomas and Scalia. Neither of whom was particularly libertarian. Scalia had some libertarian tendencies, certainly on, on some on some criminal issues, uh, but it, Scalia was not fundamentally libertarian. I mean, look at his descendant no, Romer V. Evans and Lawrence V. Texas. For goodness' sake, he's a culture yeah. warrior at, at, at his at his core. Um, so it's really interesting because Gorsuch is like the first actually libertarian sympathizing yeah. justice in a very long time. Uh, it's possible we had some kind of libertarian people in the early 20th century, back in the so-called Lochner era, but Really, since the New Deal era, Gorsuch is probably the most libertarian. So I'm curious to see how the law school, federal society, up-and-coming law students come to view Gorsuch, especially in contradistinction to Thomas. It's not at all clear to me that five to ten years from now that Thomas will be the favorite of federal society types in law school. It very well could be Gorsuch because that is more in line with what they're yes. hearing, with what they're with what they're getting exposed to, and. I, I kind of come back to what I said earlier. It's very, it, it's amusing to me. I'm only 30 years old, Daniel. It's amusing to me that kind of <laughs> this onus has somehow fallen on me to, uh, among a handful of other people, to go around and try and distill and inculcate what it actually means to be a judicial conservative. But also, there's no these one guys else. love, they love criminals. I, I don't, I don't get what's going on. Look, you and I both know that there are times as a judge, you're going to side with a gr- given criminal defendant if the law compels that, but there's this obsession and, and, and the problem is like, you know, I study this from a policy end and I can't tell you the number of obstacles. It's gotten so bad that almost everyone pleads down because the prosecutors can't land a conviction. There's we all know what these amendments, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth amendments were, you know, where you wouldn't have King George just grabbing someone and and off with their head. Right. You have a jury right. trial, you have due process, but there's so many technicalities that they created that are built off one court case which built off another which built off another and thomas is the only one who would say dude in 1790 we weren't doing that and these guys have no regard for it and the other thing that really scares me to and i think we'll close with this to close the loop on thomas i'm very scared about this thomas was reportedly sick at the opening of the session this week i don't think it was serious but he's getting up there in age and you know my concern is one of the things people don't realize is the same problem that plagues the conservative legal movement. It's it's a redundant manifestation of the conservative political movement. And that is, A, it's generally become more libertarian, but B, 
the the left enshrines everything they do and they enmesh everything they do all the key, key issues marriage immigration criminal law election law almost everything that matters they enmesh it in race Hey, that that's the kryptonite, and they know that's the kryptonite. Like with Superman, you, you put it out there, and Republicans are like, oh, like they they they, they can't handle <laughs> themselves. Like you know, they they just open that can up and <laughs> they just start running. It, it, there's nothing intellectual about it. Okay, like that that's what it is. You and I saw that, and I can't. It, it was the case, Flowers in Mississippi. Oh yeah, the, oh yeah, the Flowers case. The guy had the guy shot up people there was it was beyond the shadow of a doubt there was no question about the evidence he got off like seven times on technicalities and they finally they retried and retried him and thomas was the only one standing in that case even alito who's always the best on criminal law he's viewed as the opposite of gorsuch you know he's like yeah this case is different and i looked at it and i was like it was all race. And, and uh, they, they said it. I mean, you looked at the writings of all of them. It was all they said it was a racist jury pool, racist this, racist prosecutor. Thomas seems to be the only one that just doesn't care. Like you, you, you can say whatever you want. It, this is the law. This is tradition. This is this is what we do in our system. I don't care. I don't think I don't think people like that exist. Yeah. No, again, ta- I mean, the single greatest living American. I mean, he truly gives zero, you know what, what anyone out there thinks of him other than himself and probably his dear wife, Jenny. He truly does not care. And what's amazing about Clarence Thomas is I've heard from so many of his law clerks. He is so humble about his day-to-day job. He will tell you that he gets in there in the morning. He defends the Constitution during the day. He goes home late afternoon, early evening, and then, and then just wants to like relax and watch football or NASCAR or kind of just, <laughs> kind of just hang out with Jenny. And he truly is one of a kind. He is something just truly special. And I really hope that I get to spend some more time with him um, over the next few years because I only have met him briefly. But yeah. he's, just an intele- he's just an intellectual rock star who cares nothing about what anyone thinks of him. And I am concerned about his health. I, I think he was back on the bench later this week. So that's, that's obviously good. <laughs> um, but you know what? I mean, it wouldn't shock me terribly um, if Trump were to have a second term and he were to retire, I, I certainly would not be terribly surprised by that. It perhaps would even be a prudent move for him to yeah, do so in a second term. When are you going to do it? You don't want to, right? Yeah, you don't want to get caught with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg equivalent, you know, yeah. where you're just, you know, you, you're stuck on enemy territory for a while, and that's what scares me. And then you're going backwards because that's that's irreplaceable. I mean, you can't you you, you can't replace someone like that. Um, it's going to be more of a Gorsuch type. And, and again, where Gorsuch feels strongly, where he agrees with us, he'll he'll go bolder. But I do think the the kryptonite of everyone is race. And and Thomas is the only one he does this all the time. Like there will be 50 years of Title VII or, or other aspects of the Civil Rights Act where the courts interpret it a certain way. And he'll say, actually, the entire 50 years is built on crap. And I think it's yeah. nonsense. No one else is going to do that. He's fearless. He's absolutely fearless. His, he, I'm, I'm glad you raised flowers. I think it was out of Mississippi, that case from uh, yeah. last term. His flowers descent is incredible. It, it, that is the most passionate writing that I've, ever, that I've seen Clarence Thomas in, in, in years. Because he wasn't always, he hasn't always been prone to the just true animation, the true like bleeding your heart on the paper that Scalia was sometimes known for in his culture war yeah. case descents. 
But Thomas just let it all out there. And he always has done so when it comes to race. There was, it was the, there's a Pena case from like 1996. There was also like a, a race case, I think, out of Virginia. And that's actually why I think that if and hopefully when the court finally overturns its affirmative action hash of a doctrine that's made ever, ever since the late 1970s, I expect Clarence Thomas to write that majority opinion. And it will be a beautiful majority opinion. And I hope it happens before he retires because it will probably be his landmark majority opinion. I can't, I can't actually think of a true constitutionally, doctrinally meaningful case that Thomas can currently point to as his landmark career-defying opinion. I hope, indeed I pray, that the court gets to overturn his affirmative action jurisprudence while he is still in the court, because that would be the case. Do you he think is we have so votes? passionate about that issue. I, I feel a lot better with one more justice, honestly. I don't, and it's always just one justice. Yeah, you know? I know. I actually do I mean, trust Roberts on this. Right? If there's one issue that I think Roberts is reliable on, it's probably this. And what, and what does I say about John Roberts, by the way? And there's, there's one issue, it's this one. But, but is there any issue in the sense that he's this, he, he's different than, he's like the James Comey of the Supreme Court. I mean, everything's like a game. You know what I mean? It's not a matter, look, everyone who knows him back in the 80s, he wasn't like that. And I, I still think he might have certain quirks that are annoying. He's fundamentally not a liberal it's just he's become so political. But again, what is placed at the Supreme Court is premised on stuff that is so wacko that, yeah, you're going to have to swat everyone down. I mean, that's just how it is. And, and he feels a complex about that. So I think if the media makes the case big enough, he'll find a way to split the baby. And, um, you know, you know, even when you have a categorical ruling, the lower court liberal judges will do what they want. So certainly when you give right. them an opening and say, well, in this case, but we'll they'll say like, well, OK, every case is different. Um, all right. What what uh, final thought? And I, I totally lost track of the time. My editors are going to kill me here um, <laughs> producing this thing. It's up to a full hour. What is the case you're most excited about seeing a conclusion th this term? Well, OK, that's a great question. Um. So I'm actually excited to see what happens in the Title VII employment discrimination case because I, I, I'm looking at this almost, and this is all, this is kind of hypocritical given everything we talked about, but I'm looking at it almost through a broader political cultural perspective. I mean, I look about what what the 2020 Democratic candidates were saying at this LGBT town hall, you know, with Robert Francis, Beto O'Rourke talking about depriving churches of tax exempt status if they don't teach the rainbow jihad, transgender, homosexual agenda. This is the bread and butter of our current culture war dispute, of course. I mean, it was a so-called transgender story hour, right, that kind of set off the whole Sora Bamari v. David French debate from this whole summer. This is the crux of the current cultural moment. And obviously, a love council at First Little Reinstitute, where we frequently defend the rights of the faithful against uh, the LGBT agenda. So I am personally very excited to see, to see what happens there. I, I, I got to be honest, I'm not particularly optimistic. I have a very sneaking suspicion that Roberts or Kavanaugh could let us down there. I really hope I'm wrong. Wow. I really hope I'm wrong, obviously. Um, I just have a sneaking suspicion there. Those two guys, are I, they worry me so much, Daniel. They're just so susceptible, I think, <laughs> to a full-front PR media manipulation campaign. And on no issue is the Fortune 500, Hollywood, upper echelon society, institutional social capital more adamant than on the LGBT stuff. So I'm, I'm following Zarda and Basak. I'm trying to remember what was it? I think it was in the 96 Romer case where Scalia wrote at the end that and this was, I mean, at the foot of the mountain of the rainbow jihad. 
uh, you know, over 20 years ago, he said something like, you, if you're applying for a, a clerkship in law school or whatever, you could do anything you want. But if you're against that stuff, then forget it. He said that in 96. So, I mean, certainly in the legal profession. And that's what scares me. That's the biggest thing that I think some of our colleagues that maybe are pretty close to us in opinions, but don't see what we see, the problems with the judiciary. I think they're missing one handicap. They're like, okay, how many Supreme Court justices? How many lower court? They control the legal profession's culture. Right. That's right. the that that's the fundamental thing. Anyway, we're out of time. We're gonna have to have you back again. Always enlightening, um, folks. Let me know your feedback, your questions for Josh. You can always email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Have a terrific, terrific weekend. We'll have a little bit of a shorter week next week, but we'll be back full force next time. Same place, same time, same passion. <laughs>